Hi guys, welcome to Charles Listens. This is your host, Charles Malone. On our show tonight, we have a special guest, Tommy Rackettile. Did, did I say that right? Perfect, yeah. Uh, Tommy is a survivor of the Holocaust and uh, since 2003, he's been, I say to every national school in the country, uh, and and same with the secondary schools. Uh, so, Tommy, first question mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you is, what was it like growing up as a child in Czechoslovakia? And when was the first time you felt that people are treating you differently because of your religion? Anyway, uh, thanks for inviting me, Charles. Uh, uh, my name is Thomas Reichenthal. Uh, I'm a, a Holocaust survivor. I'm Jewish and I'm living in Ireland since uh, 1960. So it's uh, over 60 years now. Uh, I'm a survivor of the Holocaust, uh, and uh, you a question, to answer a question, when I first realized uh, what is happening around me. Uh, I was born in 1935, and uh, the Holocaust basically started in 1939. Uh, not the Holocaust, but the persecution of Jewish people in 1939. Uh, so I, I was only four years old. Uh, but uh, my parents uh, uh, didn't tell me anything uh, what was happening, simply not to frighten me. So the first time I realized that uh, I'm different was when uh, uh, I was expelled uh, from the school in the little village that I grew up and uh, uh, I still visit occasionally uh, the village. Um, I always remember it as my paradise. It, it, uh, I grew there my childhood and uh, I had an idyllic uh, childhood uh, uh, in the countryside. Uh, uh, so uh, I didn't know anything. And uh, the children for the village used to come to our farm and I used to play with them. And uh, my parents never mentioned uh, anything that uh, was happening around. Uh, at six, uh, when I was six, I started the school in the village. There was a national school. I was at the time six year old, 1941. I still uh, didn't know anything what is happening, all the persecution and uh, uh, there were laws uh, against the the Jews in the country, and uh, uh, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, only when uh, beginning of 1942 or end, uh, uh, end of 1941, I was expelled uh, because the law was, uh, the new law, the, uh, the 
a Jewish quarter. It was called the Jewish quarter. Uh, it's one of the paragraphs uh, that there were about 200 paragraphs uh, for, for exemption and uh, all uh, in connection. Uh, anybody was Jewish, uh, there were all kinds of restrictions. And one of them was that um, uh, Jewish children uh, can attend a national school, we had to attend a Jewish school. And um, of course, in the village, there wasn't Jewish school, uh, but uh, the near, near town uh, uh, to our village, uh, there was a large Jewish uh, uh, community, about 5,000. So there were several Jewish schools in that town. And my aunt lived there, and I went there. The second thing was that uh, we had to wear a yellow star on the left side from the age of five. But I, I never wore it in the village because there was no police, so there was nobody to impose the law. And the local people anyway, they all knew that I'm Jewish. Uh, so when I come to town, I saw my aunt uh, sewing the yellow star on my left side of the coat. And I asked, what is that for? Uh, I didn't know anything about these things. So she said, and we were very, very innocent at the time, you know. If today you ask a six-year-old here that goes to school and you mention uh, Ukraine, he will be able to tell you what is happening in Ukraine, what is that there is war. But in, in our time, we were very innocent. I didn't know anything that is happening beyond the village. We, we, we didn't have television or newspaper. They come a couple of days later. So uh, in school, you didn't learn about these things. Just wondering now, Tommy, Apart from the star of David, uh, what, are, what persecutions happened here when you before he before he uh, left their town or the village? Well, as I said, in the in the village, uh, I wasn't persecuted. As I said, I had an idyllic life there when it began, sort of 1941-42 that uh, the political part uh, persecution began, uh, which uh, involved, uh, they uh, took the properties from the Jews. If you had a business, my grandfather had a village shop. Uh, they confiscated the, uh, the shop in 1942. So that, that's when it uh, touched us. Uh, in the thing, but just to tell you when first time that I found out uh, the time difference was when next day or days after uh, I arrived to this town and I started to go to the Jewish school, I had to wear the yellow star, which of course uh, it was there deliberately to identify me as a Jew. 
And when they were children, they were children not much older than me, six, seven years old, and they would stand on the corner of the street, and I would be going uh, to the school. They suddenly started to shout at me, you dirty Jew, you smelly Jew, go to Palestine. And uh, later on, they become much more aggressive. They would throw stones after me. And uh, this was the first time uh, that uh, I realized I'm different uh, because they abused me on the street. I remember coming crying to my aunt. I didn't want to go to school because I was abused on the street. But of course, I couldn't. I had to go to school. You know, the education was very important. So every day I encountered these, these bullies. Uh, you know, they wanted to catch me, to beat me up, and they would uh, spit uh, at me. I would run all the time. And when I saw children on one side of the street, I would run to the other side. So this was uh, in, in uh, 1942. I was seven years old, that for the first time I really realized that there is uh, something. Of course, I didn't go a long time to, uh, to school because uh, uh, the deportation started, our teacher were taken away, and uh, the school ended. About seven years old, when I, when I uh, discovered that I'm yeah. different than uh, other children. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. How, I know you went to the concentration camp in '44, but when did you leave the, the village when you when realised it was too dangerous to stay there? Yeah, so we lived in the village during the Holocaust. Uh, in other words, the deportation started uh, in 1942. But my father was a farmer, and therefore he was uh, important for the economy. And as a farmer, we got an exemption paper that for the time being, we shouldn't be taken away. But the deportation started in March 1942, and it was uh, the first phase of deportation that majority of the Jewish people in Czechoslovakia were murdered in, in, in 1942. Uh, in Slovakia at the time, there were about uh, 95,000 Jews living in Slovakia. It represented about 3% of the population. And out of the 95,000, 55,000 uh, 55, were uh, uh, transported between uh, March and October 1942. Within these six months, two-thirds of the Jewish population was deported from Slovakia. And according to the statistic, only between 200 uh, 50 to 500 survived. Rest of them all were murdered in the, in the Holocaust. I lost at the time over 30 members of my family, people 
that I knew very well, cousin and aunt, uncle, they used to come for the holiday to our house, to our home. And uh, my cousins, I used to play with them. I knew them very well. We're still talking about it today. When I meet my brother, we talk about these people because we knew them so well. And they were taken away, and that was the last time we saw them. So 1942, we were not taken away for the simple reason, uh, because my father had this uh, exemption. And in October 1942, the deportation stopped. And it started again in 1944. In 1944, uh, for the first time, Slovakia was occupied by Germany. While the rest of Europe was being occupied between uh, 1939 up to 1945, of course, 1945, the war ended. Uh, during this time, the rest of Europe was occupied by uh, Germany, but Slovakia was not. Uh, Slovakia was only occupied in the last uh, several months uh, before the war ended. Uh, because uh, Slovakia uh, cooperated with the German, uh, they helped in the uh, war effort, they transported uh, the war, of course, started on the Polish border, which uh, uh, borders with Slovakia. And uh, uh, so through Slovakia, they used to uh, supply the German army. Uh, with ammunition, mark power, and heavy equipment, guns, and, and so on. So uh, Slovakia was a friendly nation with Germany, but uh, in 1944, it was in uh, October, uh, uh, 28th of uh, uh, October, yeah, it was 28th of October. I haven't got my notice, uh, the exact date. Um, there was an uprising in Slovakia. In other words, the Slovak people rebelled against the German regime. And um, uh, the Slovak government couldn't suppress this uprising because many soldiers joined that. Uh, rebellion as well and police as well defected to the to the uh, rebel and uh, so for the first time uh, Germany uh, occupied Slovakia not because they wanted to occupy Slovakia but because they uh, wanted to help to uh, protect the fascist. Uh, regime in Slovakia, which was friendly to Germany, which they, of course, succeeded. And it was this time that, of course, we knew that no uh, paper will help or anything. Once the Germans were there, they wanted to finish their job and uh, get the rest of the Jews arrested and uh, 
delivered uh, to, to this extermination camp because the aim, of course, was to eradicate uh, Europe of uh, Jews. It was a genocide. And so we, we had to leave the village at that time because we didn't know who was our friend, who was our enemy. And we were afraid that somebody will betray us. And uh, that's why we left the village. We were going to go to another village where nobody knew us, pretending that we were uh, 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 Gentiles, that we were not Jews. And so uh, save our life. Your father stayed behind to look after the farm, didn't he? Yeah, my father stayed behind to look after the farm. Unfortunately, somebody did betray him from the village and he was arrested. We were at the time in Bratislava and we thought, that's it, we will never see him again. But uh, as it happened, when he was being arrested, he was uh, taken to a detention camp. And from there, he was uh, put onto a cattle cart. Uh, and he was being taken most probably to Auschwitz, where he would have been murdered. But uh, somebody uh, in this carriage uh, managed to open the door of the carriage. He opened it and he said, anybody wants to save himself to jump after him. And um, the, he jumped in that trap that opened the door. And only two men, there were about 50 men in the carriage. Only two men jumped after him because not everybody has the courage to <laughs> jump out. And especially... And this transport used to go during the night. So, of course, the, uh, when you jumped out, you were jumping out, you didn't know what is outside. So you needed a big courage to do it. And one of them was my father, another, another fellow. And uh, he jumped out of the train and then they went to a forest where they met the uh, partisan, this, were, this was the resistance army that was fighting the, the Nazis, and uh, he survived the war. Yeah, so, didn't, didn't he break his arm or, or shoulder when he jumped out? Yeah, when, when he jumped out, uh, you know, there are all kind of uh, uh, post. signal things that... Uh, are on the beside the rail tracks, and when he jumped, he jumped into one of these uh, beams, uh, whatever it was, and his left arm was uh, thrown back, and it wasn't looked after immediately afterwards. So I remember all his life he couldn't lift his hand more than his shoulder. His left arm, no, couldn't because he wasn't treated, and uh, only afterwards, uh, and something of course uh, happened, and he couldn't 
lift his arm any further than his shoulder, yeah. The other two guys that jumped out, they, they know they, if they survived the war and it, what to do if they uh, did? No, we don't know. The, the whole uh, event, uh, I was trying to find out what happened to the rest of people in this uh, particular transport. Yeah. But I couldn't find out. Yeah, no, I was talking about the two lads jumped out with your father. Did they survive? Don't, don't know. My, yeah, my yeah, father yeah. never told us. Or he might have told us. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. I would so, say they did survive. You know? yeah. So how about yourself? Are they, uh, how were you captured in then? Well, we were, we were in Bratislava and we were from Bratislava. We were supposed to go to this new village and uh, my grandfather uh, grandmother my mother of my mother uh, she was coming with us she was up to that time she was in hungary because in hungary only in the last uh, uh, several months uh, uh, started the deportation so uh, she lived in Hungary and she came uh, to, back to Slovakia. First of all, she was smuggled uh, to Hungary and lived there till the uh, end of the uh, uh, 1944. And then she came back to Slovakia. And then she was supposed to come with us to this new village and as i said uh, i pretend that we were not jewish that we were gentile catholics and it was the day we were uh, moving from bratislava to the village that my mother went uh, to collect my her mother of course my grandmother uh, to take her to the train station and she would go with us. But unfortunately, somebody betrayed her. She was, I, I have a picture of that time. I don't know who took that picture, but uh, my grandmother was uh, dressed like a, a village uh, uh, farmer's uh, lady, like uh, clothes and everything like the local people so that she could travel and nobody will suspect. But apparently somebody betrayed her. And when my mother, she was in a shop, it was a laundry shop. And when my mother entered the shop, she saw many policemen in the shop and the Gestapo. And of course, she... she Come and she uh, said she left some laundry and she came to collect laundry. She pretended that she, she had a laundry there because she knew what was happening and she saw her mother. Uh, she was beaten up. She had all swollen face and everything. So she knew that something terrible happened. And um, immediately they... I wanted to identify my mother. She had to show her documents. We had false documents at the time. 
which were given to us by a priest, because with our name like Reichenthal, we wouldn't get too far. They were everywhere, uh, police, and you had to identify yourself. So uh, Reichenthal is a German name, but we were not German. They would have known right away that we were uh, Jews. And uh, so we have false papers. But unfortunately, the priest did not change my mother's maiden name, uh, which, of course, uh, uh, my uh, grandmother had the maiden name, which was Shaimovich. And uh, in the document that my mother had, it was uh, born Shaimovich. So the moment they looked on the identity card, they realized that my mother was the daughter. And so she was arrested. And then uh, our cases, uh, which were at the train station, were brought back. And uh, when they opened them, they saw children close. So the Gestapo said, where are you children? And she knew she couldn't. Uh, uh, tell them some story uh, because uh, the Gestapo will beat up uh, and they wanted to know immediately where are the children. So she had to tell them and uh, the next thing the Gestapo was, we were in a shop about 250 yards, 300 yards from this shop waiting for my mother. And uh, we were arrested. First we were beaten up, my brother first, and then I was beaten up. And uh, that was the day uh, uh, we were arrested. Uh, it was it was 16 of October. The uprising started uh, 28th of August. 1944, not October 1944. It was in August and uh, we were arrested on the 16th of October. So, yeah, uh, so uh, when you got to Belsen in the, uh, what was your first reaction when you... Well, uh, <laughs> The scene was um, terrible. Uh, uh, the fields and uh, the people were just skeletons. Uh, and next morning, when we arrived there, it was in the night. Uh, I remember it was raining, it was very cold. And uh, when we were called, uh, it's about seven o'clock in the morning for the first roar call, and we looked around because we arrived in the night. So we didn't see anything, it was dark. We only saw these blocks on each side of the road and no people, they were all sleeping. But in the morning we saw uh, people walking around and they looked like skeletons, uh, they shaved head, they were just skin and bones, like a dead bodies walking around. It was a scene 
from uh, hell. Uh, uh, it, it was dreadful, and um, well, very quickly we had to go, get used to this um, atmosphere and, and stench because there was a crematorium where the Belgian Belgian was not an extermination camp. It was a detention camp. But uh, people were dying all the time, so from malnutrition, from disease, from uh, cold, and starvation. And so people were dying there 60, 70 per day at the time. And there was a crematoria in the camp where they burned the corpses, of course, the purpose was the German believed that uh, they will win the war, and after the war, uh, they could say, Belgian Belgian, nobody died because there, there were no uh, cemetery or graves because the corpses were burnt and the uh, ashes were thrown all around. So, of course, uh, the crematoria was burning uh, day and night, and you could see from the chimney during the day. Uh, yeah, uh, just, what were the guards like? Was there any kind guards there? Like, I know, I know most of the guards were evil, but was there any guards there? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, we were taunted and, and made feel like uh, nothing in the, by the guard. We were actually supervised by women. And this woman, they were sort of in their 20s. Uh, one particular one that I wanted to meet, she was 23 at the time. But they were very, very rude and, and ruthless and, and they're punishing. If we had one case of a woman that was punished and uh, she would uh, we would stand in a, a half circle and she would beat that woman till she fell on the ground and then she would kick her and call her all the names and uh, we had to watch. Uh, so they, they were very cruel. And the simple reason was that uh, their motto was uh, don't be kind because he show, shows uh, uh, weakness uh, and therefore they show the brutality. Uh, and uh, we experienced this, uh, saw this in other blocks, uh, people were beaten up uh, daily and um, shouted. Uh, our mothers were called all the a horrible name, very degrading and everything. So the concentration camp, uh, to describe what was happening there, it's very, very difficult because we can say that we were brutalized 24 hours, seven days a, a week, all the time. Uh, anything that you had to do was not straightforward. Anything that we, as normal people, are used to, 
uh, as a routine from the morning on. Uh, we do our things and everything uh, automatically. We don't think about it twice. Then everything was uh, difficult, dirty, uh, and, and uh, uh, very degrading, and in starvation, in cold. So when I say to somebody that I went through all these things, and people would say, we can only imagine what you went through. I always say, you cannot imagine. Nobody can imagine what we went through. And it is an interesting uh, observation that when two Holocaust survivor meet, when I meet a Holocaust survivor, first thing I want to hug them. They like a part of a special family because I know that who I'm hugging, uh, the person went through what I went through. He understands, and I understand what he went through. And that's this connection which we have still today. I many times I meet other survivors. And that's how we react, all of us, because outside of this uh, special group of survivors, Nobody can understand that torture, it, it, daily torture, for months and years. Didn't uh, you tell me a story about your? Uh, it was your brother's birthday. That, that, that you tried to. Uh, it was your brother's birthday anyway, and you tried. Brother tried to uh, have a party or something, or they made a cake or what was it? Yeah, you're talking about the, uh, the bar mitzvah, of my brother. Yeah, maybe that was it. Yeah, but uh, bar mitzvah, it's, it's um, every in the Jewish uh, religion, we have the bar mitzvah, which is at the age of 13. Uh, and it means that a boy that reaches uh, 13 uh, becomes an adult in a family. So it's a symbolic uh, uh, thing. But in practice, it could be also in practice, uh, in a cases where, God forbid, the father is very ill or the father died, uh, a boy of 13 takes the, supposed to take the uh, place of the father. He's an adult person. And this... Uh, this event is, is celebrated. It is a, a normally a great celebration. Uh, uh, it's near like a, like a wedding or something, you know, with a, a big party with, with a, a food. Usually, it's in a hotel or something, and it's a dancing and. Uh, uh, so it is a big celebration, and my brother uh, became bar mitzvah. His thirteenth birthday was on eighteen of um, uh, December. We come to the to the concentration camp 
on 9th of November. And on the 13th uh, uh, of uh, 18th of December was the uh, bar mitzvah of my brother. So he didn't expect anything because you couldn't couldn't celebrate in, in and besides it was against the rule. So if you're going to do anything like this, you have to make it in secret. And uh, I remember that morning uh, we we had this uh, girl. Uh, he was on, she was only 15 years old, but she had great quality of leadership. Uh, she always looked after us and uh, played with us and uh, would read uh, stories to us and teach us uh, songs to sort of make us uh, occupied. So as children. We forget that uh, uh, torture and, and uh, uh, situation that we were in. And uh, she decided uh, to celebrate my brother's uh, uh, 13th. So first of all, when we come from the roll call into the heart, uh, we were led to the communal uh, place and uh, uh, there was a little stove there and they put some potatoes. I don't know where we got the potatoes, but uh, somebody must have uh, stealed them from some, which, which was a uh, danger, terrible danger if, if something like this happened. And um, uh, so they were baking on the stove. And we all sat uh, in sort of circle and began to uh, sing songs. And then this woman suddenly came with this uh, little cake. Well, it wasn't a cake. Uh, uh, these were slices of bread that she put margarine. And uh, the slices were put one top of another, maybe half a dozen or maybe more. And then around that was margarine. So it looked like a white little cake. And in the middle, there was a candle. And um, we sang. And, and uh, what was, of course, uh, interesting, that in order uh, to make this cake, uh, this woman uh, didn't eat her portion of bread for one or two days to make this cake. So it, it might uh, uh, seem uh, just a um, little gesture, but in the concentration camp where we stopped and there was no food, bread was the currency. For bread, you could get anything. And uh, you know, some people were desperate for cigarettes or medication. So there were people that have some connection with, with one or two guards and they gave them pieces of uh, gold. So they, when they went home, they brought cigarettes or medication that somebody wanted. So bread was a very valuable commodity, nothing else. I mean, with God, you couldn't get anything, you couldn't do anything. 
so it didn't matter. You gave gold and you got uh, slices of bread, you know, out of a little chain or anything like this. And uh, this woman uh, sacrificed uh, her bread to make uh, this uh, cake. So it was a very significant, uh, significant uh, sacrifice in order that my brother has a cake uh, for his bar mitzvah. And uh, everybody wished my brother Mazeltov, which uh, in Hebrew is uh, good luck, and sang. Uh, and that's how we celebrated uh, my brother's uh, bar mitzvah. It was only very uh, symbolic, but it, it, uh, it was huge under the circumstances. That's yeah. very... So, so how did things change from the time you went into the camp until it was liberated? I, I, I know you said near the end you played hide and seek around the bodies. Yeah, well, there were all kind of uh, experiences with um, uh, in the in the camp. You can't talk about every one of them because uh, you'll be talking about hours. This this why wrote the book, and in the book I describe all these events, but this particular thing of playing uh, around the bodies, uh, as I mentioned, when we arrived, the uh, amount of uh, people dying per day might have been 60, 70 people a day. So they were born in the crematoria during the day and night. But uh, in January, many inmates from different camps come to Belgium, Belgium because uh, uh, the Germans were retreating from the uh, west to the east. And um, so many uh, prisoners, many uh, uh, inmates of uh, Jewish inmates come to Belgium, Belgium, and the population within a very short time grew from 25,000 to over 60,000. Now, there was no room in Belgium, Belgium. The camp was built basically for uh, 25,000 people. So, in every block, there were around 200, 250 people. Uh, but um, when uh, uh, so many people come to the camp, that we had to share uh, the space with these people. So suddenly, a uh, hut that was built for 200 people contained 500, 600 people. And uh, so that the so many people together. Epidemic of uh, typhus broke out in uh, Belgium, Belgium, and people began to die in, in their hundreds. Uh, it was the average was about 500 people per day, uh, 17,000 per month. So the, the, uh, the crematoria could not cope with that amount of corpses. And so the corpses were being thrown out 
uh, front of the barracks. And pile of corpses were all over the place. And uh, so at this time, I mean, we used to have a little green area where, where we used to play hide and seek and chasing each other and all kind of games. But of course, suddenly these piles of corpses were around. And we <laughs> continued to play. So we played among these corpses. So when we played uh, hide and seek, we didn't hide behind the walls or uh, trees. We hid behind pile of corpses. So, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? When you hide behind a pile of naked body, what you see front of you, I can't describe it, but uh, I can describe it, but I, I, I wouldn't describe it. It was horrific. And we play like this there, I mean, for weeks and weeks. Among these corpses, these corpses were decomposing and rotting away. It, it, the stench was. Yeah, I knew some bad news near the end. Yeah, we, we used you, to you, it. Your grandmother passed away. At the time, unfortunately, it was 7th of March, 1945. Just a month before uh, the liberation, my grandmother passed away. i never forget uh, the scene. We had this special uh, commando. Uh, that used to come from the man camp, and they would come in and would ask if anybody uh, died during the night, and whoever uh, died, they would pick them up, one by legs, one by hand, and they would throw it uh, onto a cart, and then would be wheeled out and thrown on the pile of corpses outside. And that's what happened, unfortunately, to my grandmother. Uh, I mean, it's indescribable. We, we're sitting there and she's treated like a piece of um, dirty cloth or something, just uh, skin and bone. Uh, I never forget this. What was the liberation like? It was the British soldiers liberated, wasn't it? Uh, we were liberated by the British Army, and it was on the 15th of April, uh, 1945. I mean, this was the day that the table were torn around. Our guards become the prisoner, and we were become free. So... Um, yeah, there wasn't dancing or, I mean, it happened very quickly. We didn't know about it. We knew that uh, fighting is going on not far because we could, we could hear the, the thunder of the guns and things were coming nearer and nearer uh, to the camp. But suddenly uh, one afternoon in 15th of uh, April, this... Uh, Rumbling was going through the camp, and we ran to the barbed wire because the uh, road was in the middle of the camp, and on the other side, 
where the main company were on this side was women company, we were in the women camp, and on the other side was the men camp. So in the middle was this uh, uh, road, but it was separated by barbed wire, you couldn't go onto the road. So we stood at the barbed wire and uh, welcomed the British Army. There was no dancing and shouting because 90% of the inmates in the camp were mortally sick. And uh, I have a picture. Yeah, I, I have a picture where uh, we're standing at the barbed wire and uh, my brother is uh, in it. Uh, so that, that was the moment of liberation, actual moment of liberation, because it was filmed uh, from the camera from the uh, British uh, film crew that was coming into the camp and filming as they were coming in. And on one of them is my brother. Um, so uh, some of the women would be throwing the pieces of uh, green uh, fir trees because uh, Belgian Belsen was built in the middle of a forest. So we had a lot of trees and that broke little branches and they threw them. But uh, just very subdued because most of them were very, very sick. And still after liberation, it is estimated that about 15,000 people died. So um, it was yeah. tough. So uh, what was like over the next couple of years? I know you ended up in Israel, but how would you get from the camp yeah. to Israel? Yeah. So. We were still in the camp for a couple of months, uh, basically in quarantine, because as I mentioned, there was typhus, and typhus is very, uh, very contagious. So they wouldn't let us out. Uh, they were afraid we would spread the disease outside. So we, all, we only left, uh, it must have been towards the end of June. We were liberated in April, and uh, it was in June that um, um, buses arrived from Czechoslovakia to pick us up. And we were brought back to Czechoslovakia. Uh, my father was already there because uh, 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 Slovakia was liberated by the Russian on the 5th of April. So he was from 5th of April back in the house. He painted the house and made everything nice. And uh, when we come back, uh, which was end of June or beginning of July, it was the first time that we met our father. He didn't know where we were. We didn't know where he was. We didn't expect even to see him again, but uh, we were reunited. Uh, miracle, it was a miracle because mostly uh, family that were split, uh, they were never reunited. So some of them were 
murdered in gas chamber and others uh, died due to torture and hard labor and uh, disease. So uh, in most cases they never they never saw each other. We were very very lucky was miracle, whatever we want to call it, but we all survived when we were reunited in Slovakia. Unfortunately, Slovakia still suffered from the uh, indoctrination against the Jews, so the Slovaks were not happy to see us coming back. As I said, uh, uh, Slovakia had about 95,000 uh, Jews before the war. At the end of the war, the estimate was that out of the 95, only between 15 and 20,000 survived among them, of course, we were. And we were not very welcome, I must say that in the village, we were very welcome. So we were very much liked in the village. We were always helpful with the people and uh, we participated uh, always. I mean, not me, my father, my grandfather. In all the event in the village, whether it was wedding or funeral, they, part, they were invited and uh, so, we found we were welcome in the village actually. Everybody came and we came back to greet us. And uh, luckily, our, our house survived. And that's also miraculous uh, because uh, usually when the Jewish people return, uh, their house was gone. Uh, usually, uh, the people, after they were taken away, the house would be ransacked and everything would be taken and stolen and broken. Uh, our house survived because after my father was taken away, the house was given to a collaborator who managed five Jewish farms that were in the surrounding area to our village. And so uh, he, he looked after the house. And of course, when the Russians were coming to Slovakia, one day he just left everything and escaped because he was a, a collaborator and they would have killed him. And so immediately my father, he came back took it over. So uh, we got our farm back and the, the house and everything that was in the house, uh, carpets, uh, cutlery and dishes and everything was there as we left it. And so we were lucky in that respect as well. But as I mentioned, generally speaking, uh, the Jews were not very welcome. And therefore, um, we left Slovakia in 1949. I was the first one. Uh, I belonged to the Zionist movement. 
and uh, I was the first one from the family uh, to emigrate from Slovakia to Israel. Uh, I went in February uh, 1949, and uh, my parents and uh, my brother came in uh, July uh, 1949, also emigrated from Israel. And uh, in Israel, I started to go back to school. I started to go back to school in Slovakia already. And I will never forget the time. I was at the time 10 years old. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I uh, couldn't do any mathematics. I lost all my education from 1942, from the age of um, uh, six, seven, uh, to the age of 10 uh, in 1946. Uh, and uh, I had to start in classes uh, with children of six, seven year old uh, because I had to learn how to write and read. Of course, the children, they didn't uh, understand. Uh, I mean, at that age, one year is a huge difference. I was 10 year old. It was about three years different. So the children, they thought they didn't understand that I was in concentration camp and I didn't have any education. They thought I was stupid. I just, uh, so they would bully me. I was only a little kid and they would bully me that I couldn't write. How can't, you know, <laughs> being 10 and you can't write and read, you know. So it was a very difficult time for me at the time as well. And while all the children, uh, after the uh, school, would go out and play and play football and enjoying themselves, I uh, would be sitting on the books and learning because I just wanted to get out of that uh, 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 class and join a class with children at my own age. So I had to learn while the rest of them were enjoying themselves. So it was a difficult time again. And then uh, it was 1949. I was 13, 14 year old. I went to Israel at uh, 18. I went to the Israeli army. I served in the Suez campaign in 1956. I saw horrific thing happen again uh, because in the war, when we looking at the war, like we looking now at the war in Ukraine, it's 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 like entertainment. But every time you see these explosions and things, somebody's on the other end and somebody receives, uh, people are dying and losing their limbs and things. It, it, it's, it's a horrific uh, thing happening. Yes. Uh, uh, my next question is, uh, you moved to Ireland uh, 60 years ago. 
And um, he, he didn't say anything about being in the concentration camp until I think it was 2003. So um, what uh, changed that you decided to start talking about your experience in the concentration camp then? Yeah. Well, uh, the whole thing when we come back from the concentration camp, from the beginning, nobody asked us what you went through. So we just stopped speaking about it. And uh, it was a different times and uh, for everybody. Somebody would uh, talk already when they come and the other people would not talk for a couple of years and then they would suddenly come out with uh, what happened to them. In my case, I did not speak about it for 55 years. In fact, uh, I married here in uh, 1965. I married uh, here in Ireland. This I'm still here, and uh, my wife passed away in 2003. She didn't know anything. Uh, I never told her about um, what I went through because. It was only after that I, for the first time, began to speak about it. Uh, and the reason was uh, I wanted to forget. Uh, and any time, even on the television, there would be a, a archive film from the Holocaust they would be showing. I just would change the station. I couldn't watch the the archive film, it always reminded me of the horror that I went through. Uh, but um, eventually, slowly I found out that the people, especially here, young people in Ireland, uh, didn't know much about the Holocaust when I would ask them, some student, I said, what you know about the Holocaust? So they would sort of look at me and they say, well, six million Jews uh, perished or were murdered in the Holocaust. And they basically, that's, that's what they knew. They didn't, didn't know anything else because even the curriculum, uh, they learned about the Holocaust envisioning the Second World War. So when they were learning about the Second World War, uh, there was maybe devoted uh, an hour or so uh, to the Holocaust. And they would mention that this happened, but there was not much about it. So people really didn't learn. And it was at this time that uh, I, I consciously decided that I must start to talk about it because I was one of the last, and I am still, one of the last survivors. There are not many left, and every day uh, hundreds of survivors are dying. The, we are uh, uh, all in the 80 and 90-year-old. I'm 86-year-old. And uh, some are 
my brother is 90. So uh, the survivors are old, old, very old. So there are less and less of us. And therefore, I have decided 14, 15 years ago that I have to tell, especially the students, uh, what during the Holocaust was, and it was a totally um, uh, initiative. And uh, uh, when I started, I went to school. It actually started with my grandchildren's school, uh, Zion School here in uh, Radgar, and um, uh, then other teacher invited me. Uh, until it became a thing that I, I was booked up two years in advance. <laughs> if somebody wanted me, they had to wait two years before I was able to visit them and uh, tell them the story. Yeah, these days you do it on Zoom, isn't it? Well, now I, I must say that from the COVID, there is one good thing left and it's the Zoom, uh, which of course uh, is very valuable for me uh, because otherwise it would be very difficult and getting on. Uh, so I couldn't travel. I used to leave Dublin at, at, at seven o'clock in the morning. I got up about five in the morning and I would come home six o'clock in the evening. Uh, or in a day traveling to Cork, Limerick, uh, Galway, all the places, Northern Ireland, West of Ireland. Uh, I couldn't do it now. It's, it, it, so now yeah. it's the Zoom. It, it's, yeah. So it's if I was a national school teacher or secondary school teacher, I wanted you to come to the, my school on Zoom. Um, how, do I, how do I contact you? The best thing is to contact the Holocaust Education Trust. Uh, yeah, it's Holocaust Education Trust. And uh, you phone them and um, arrange the Zoom. I do it now, maybe three or four schools together. Uh, so it would be maybe 500, 800 students at a time, which works absolutely fantastic. And um, they would uh, place whatever uh, time it suits you. They will arrange these uh, Zooms with me, and uh, uh, it can be done anyway. And you've you've written two books, uh, one for kids and one for adults. Well, I I, I brought one book, which is the I was a boy in Belson, and then we took another. Author, um, I, I just show you the book there. That's the I was a boy in Belson. Uh, I call this book uh, for adults because there are some parts that are quite um, horrific and not sort of suitable for children. Uh, so we we collaborated. I collaborated with uh, Etna Masi. She's a children's uh, author. 
So I collaborated with her to write this book, which is called Tommy. And it's a book for children uh, up to about 12 years old. Very, very nice book for children to read and learn about the Holocaust. So this book cost uh, 10 euro and uh, the other book uh, cost uh, 15 euro. Uh, you can buy them in shop, uh, but you can buy them also from me. And I usually dedicate the book uh, to the person that uh, um, ordered it. It's good to get in group because then I can send uh, several books together and I don't need to charge uh, for the postage. Uh, but if I have to send it to one person, unfortunately, the postage is so expensive uh, that you are better off to buy it in a bookshop uh, whenever you are. But it won't be uh, dedicated by me. I, from home, I can dedicate it uh, uh, to, to the actual person. Uh, just to finish up now, because I, uh, pointing what's happening in the Ukraine these days and what should the governments of the West be doing more? Well, the Ukraine event, it's a very tragic event. Something that uh, shouldn't have happened, but if it happened, the West, uh, especially the Europe and the West, I'm talking about America, of course, they should have stood their ground. Uh, Putin, he, uh, people don't believe it, but I, I don't think if America would have said at the time, and this is before it started, they, they would have sent 500 to 1,000 plans to Europe and say they will not intervene in the, if God forbid, uh, the Russian enter uh, Ukraine, they would not intervene with the people, but they will intervene, intervene with the Air Force. He wouldn't have done it. And, and if, you, uh, if you could talk to Mr. Putin now, what would you say to him? He threatened with the atom thing, but the West could have threatened him as well. That would have been checkmate, and he wouldn't have risked it. But he bluffed, and the West um, behaved in in yeah. very bad way. Yeah. So it happened now, and uh, I would say first of all is uh, uh, the refugees, the same as with the previous West refugees. We have to do everything possible to place these refugees and welcome them and give them a chance. These people are not coming to Europe or for that matter to Ireland for getting uh, national uh, uh, unemployment, they're coming because they 
want to be free. Uh, and therefore we should help them. And uh, of course, uh, Ireland is uh, doing a pretty good job lately as, as far as the refugees are concerned. Uh, the best should give every possible help to the Ukrainian army that they need. We, we should at least uh, do it uh, that way. The actual fact that the West is all the time talking about they were not in the NATO and therefore they don't need to interfere and they will interfere with NATO. This is a purely excuse. This the uh, Ukraine it, it's a human tragedy and we are looking at it as entertainment every day on the television. And if we go to the saying that uh, the, uh, after the war, when these concentration camps were liberated and everybody was talking about never again, we can say goodbye to that. It's happening all the time. And Holocaust, can happen again. And the West and everybody will be sitting around and watching what is happening if that other side threatens with some something and they yeah. can find excuse for not interfering. Very sad uh, event, really. Just wondered, uh, should countries like Saudi Arabia be um, sanctioned because of what they're doing in Yemen? Well, what they're doing, uh, I, they should continue to do it and do it more as possible to, to isolate Russia completely, everything, everything, all uh, culture, sport, everything should be. Not because we are against the Russian people, but because we have to remind the Russians, get rid of this butcher, butcher. And 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 uh, we will have peace among ourselves again. It, it it's not against the Russian people. It's against Putin. He has every possible thing that the West can do. They should do everything. We can anyway, do. Uh, uh, I just want to thank you now for uh, taking part in Charles' listens. Uh, it's hard to believe it's over two years ago since we met each other in in the town in the town roar the High Street House. And uh, you've become a great friend of mine since then. And uh, hopefully when COVID um, gets better, we can meet up again. I, said, I want to thank you and um, thanks again. Thanks for having me.